Well, good morning. And just in case you're wondering, no, this is not an animal that I killed that I'm wearing. Um, This is just the coziest sweater that has ever existed, and I'm not going to take it off until it's too hot outside to wear it. It is so comfortable. Well, Merry Christmas. This is our last Sunday before Christmas. Next week during this time, we will probably be watching the kids argue over presents and trying to clean up all of the paper. Um, And we will be watching a service online. You probably know this. We're not gathering here next week because we want to rest. We want to enjoy this season. We're still going to worship together. Um, We're going to be able to stream that whenever uh, you're ready to do that. But today we are in our last scene in the Christmas story in the book of Luke. Um, and I'm just while you're, while you're turning there, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We're going to start reading in verse 22. You can go ahead and open there. But while you're turning there, this is going to be a, kind of a different sermon, um, a different sermon from how I normally preach. Um, this is going to skew more teaching than preaching, if that makes sense. There's a lot of information that's coming today, so I'm just going to give you a heads up now so we can calibrate for that. There's a lot of information that's coming. But I was really actually inspired by Phil's sermon last week as he dove into the details and nuances of the Christmas story to show us a story that's oftentimes, uh, we kind of just glance over it because we hear it so many times, but to show us the complexity and the beauty of how God's purposes are accomplished in ways we would never expect. So we're kind of following that same line today. But rather than so much diving into the details of one specific story, we're going to look at the big picture of how the Christmas story interacts with the entire book of Luke. So for those of you that love lectures, you're going to love today. For those of you that hate lectures, sorry. Uh, (laughs) Luke chapter 2, verse 22, that's where we're going to be. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, which that's weird to me, by the way. They just walked in and some stranger grabs the baby. I'm not cool with that, but it was a different culture. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord. As you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Congratulations on the baby. There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. 
He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Let's pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for today. For your word, we ask that you would speak to us. The name of Jesus is the only name that matters to us this morning. Let what's from you be remembered and what's not be forgotten. Amen. So I, uh, I grew up in the Carolinas in North Carolina. Where are the natives at? Anybody from here? Yeah. All right. Okay, like four of us. Yeah, nice. <laughs> That's cool. Hey, listen, we're glad you finally made it. This is God's country. Some people call it the South. Some people call it the preferred land of the Lord. We call it home. Home of Cheerwine, Sweet Tea, and Waffle House. Amen? Amen. Yes. God's country. If you haven't eaten at Waffle House yet, then I don't, I don't know what you're doing with your life, honestly. Um, I love Waffle House so much. Honestly, I lived in Michigan. This is not part of my notes. I'm just going off now. But I lived in Michigan for a while in South Dakota. There are no Waffle Houses. Hardest season of my life, by far. It's just like, what are you going to do at 2 a.m. when you want a greasy waffle in a fight? <laughs> just kidding. I didn't fight in a Waffle House. <laughs> Outside a Waffle House in the parking lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, grew, I grew up in North Carolina. North Carolina is a lot like South Carolina culturally, um, and then uh, the landscape is very similar too. Everywhere that I lived, if you drove 30 miles in any direction, then you could get to like a beautiful overlook or a hike. I lived, most of the places I lived growing up, you could see the mountains off in the distance. If you drove in one direction, you got mountains. If you drove in the other direction, you've got ocean, right? It was beautiful. And there were trees everywhere, which is a strange observation to make about a place, but it'll make sense later. And I... This was my idea. This shaped my whole idea of what a cool place to live was. Like there are mountains over there. There was no flat. Even if you live in the flat part of the Carolinas, it's not really flat, right? Everything has hills and undulations in the land. And when I was in college, I predictably got super interested in the outdoors and in adventure. I love the idea of these, like the Rocky Mountains and Alaska. And me and my friends, we would go on climbing trips. We went on a climbing trip out west, and we would watch videos of people alpine skiing and snowboarding. And this, like, this was the type of stuff that we liked. When I thought of the place that I wanted to live, like the place I could see myself in the future, it was something with mountains or with ocean or with diversity in the landscape. So when I graduated college, my friends moved to Utah, and I moved to eastern South Dakota. <laughs> which is the flattest place in America. It's like, like, you can literally, and this is not an exaggeration, there are not very many trees in eastern South Dakota. So that's why it's different in North Carolina and South Carolina. There are not many trees. It's the prairie, traditionally. Historically, it's just prairie. So there are places where you can literally stand and see for miles. You can see to the horizon in any direction, and the only thing to provide any relief for your eye is corn and silos. That's just it. And I, and I moved there, and I, I loved the church I worked at. I met my wife there, so it worked out. You know, it was a good move overall. But I, I wondered, yet like, why, why do people come to a place like this unless they've got a job? Yeah, like this, this, it just didn't seem interesting to me. I looked out, and all I could see was mundane. Just everywhere I look, it looks exactly the same. Everywhere I look, it's, it's boring. There's not even trees to look at. I, I couldn't, I had such a hard time seeing myself having a life there. I had such a hard time imagining any sort of future in this place. But I realized after being there for a while that there were other people who felt the exact opposite as me. Jen's family grew up in South Dakota for generations. Jen's dad was born in the house that he lived in and farmed the same few hundred acres for generations and generations. They looked out at cornfields and soybeans and uninterrupted view and saw freedom. 
And they looked down at soil that was fertile, and they saw life. I mean, these were the views. When the sun set in South Dakota and there was nothing to block the view and the whole sky lit up purple, these were the things they dreamed about. And when we moved back to the Carolinas, uh, Jen's parents came to visit us. And I remember, I remember this because I was a little bit offended. I didn't want to let on. I was a little bit offended. And they started saying stuff like, well, don't you feel claustrophobic with all these trees? You can't see anything. And then they would say, how do you find your way around with all these roads? They all curve. There are no straight roads. There are no curves in South Dakota. It's all flat. All of the roads are straight. You could take a nap and drive across the state, and it would be fine. And I said, we get around with Google Maps. That's what we do. Um, but, and, and then I remember, this one's really distinct in my mind. Jen's dad looked down. You know, we've got clay, that red clay soil. And he said, how does anything grow in this? And I remember it hit me that that your history and your relationships and your goals, the things you're looking for, directly affect how you perceive the beauty of something and the interest of something. You could look at something that I would see as absolutely beautiful and breathtaking, and all you could see is an obstacle or something infertile or something that you could never farm. But I could look at something that that seems mundane and boring And you would see life, and you would see history, and you would see the calloused hands of your family that's done this for generations. You know, as I've gotten older, I've come to love the wide open spaces because they mean something different to me now. You know, Jen and I both love road trips. We love, first off, I hate flying. That's part of the reason. But second, I just, I really like to uh, be in the car and especially in the mountains, whether it's in the Rockies or on the Blue Ridge Parkway, any place that I can get where I can see forever. I love that. Those landscapes that make you feel small, you know what I mean? I realized the other day that I love driving through the mountains in a Subaru, but if I were, I don't know, a truck driver driving an 18-wheeler, I'd probably hate the mountains because that would mean the possibility of my brakes going out on a steep incline, and that would mean being a long way from help if something went wrong. That would be a problem for me. We would be looking at the same thing, But I would see something I dream about, and they would see something that's a problem. Because our perspective shapes how we interact with something. It shapes what we see. Interestingly enough, it doesn't change the thing. Now, our perceptions are valid. It's our story. It's our history. But whether I see the Rocky Mountains as a thing of beauty or as a thing to be worried about, they're still beautiful. Whether I see the plains as mundane or full of life, they're still full of life. It's kind of like a song. Have you ever had a song that you used to really like, but also your ex really liked it, so now you hate it? (laughs) The song didn't change. You changed. Your history, your relationships, where you're standing in life, changes the way you perceive something. It doesn't change the thing itself, but it changes the way you perceive it. Now, I'm going to make was probably a big statement mostly based on anecdotal evidence and my own observation. But I think it's going to ring true to you. It seems to me like so many of us, probably the majority of us, interact with Scripture and our situation, our history, our relationships oftentimes cause us to see something mundane or to see something that's difficult, or to see something that's problematic. 
rather than seeing something that's profound and significant. Now, that doesn't change the beauty of what we're looking at. But our perception causes us to have a hard time seeing ourselves in the story. It causes us to have a hard time seeing a future in the story. Some of us, we kind of look down on Scripture. It's hard for us to really take it seriously because maybe our perception is that people who read Scripture need a crutch. Some of us look up at Scripture and we think this is too complicated and it's too hard. There's no way I'm really going to understand it. For some of us, we look at Scripture and we've got a history with a person or with people that have really tainted our ability to interact with Scripture. And here's, here's my goal today, and I'm breaking pretty much every sermon writing rule and public speaking rule by just telling you now instead of building to it and unveiling the secret later. But this is the goal. My goal for the rest of this morning is simple. It's for you and for me to see ourselves in the story. For those of us who have a hard time seeing how this story could live in our life, how we could fit into the story of the people of God, for us to see ourselves in the story. My battery is dead. I will yell. (laughs) Sure, that works. Who needs my technical difficulties these days? (laughs) That worked out surprisingly well. All right, I always, the music needs to keep going, come on. All right, perfect, there we go. Hey, oh, I always get in trouble because they tell me I hold the thing at my belly button, and my belly button doesn't talk, so I'm going to do my best to hold it up here. So that's the goal this morning. Are you guys cool with diving in? All right, this is where it gets luxury. All right, so you ready? Awesome. So when we look at the book of Luke, here's what we're looking at. Scholars tend to agree that each of the Gospels, the Gospels are the first four books in the New Testament. Each of the Gospels are telling the same basic story. They're telling us the story of the life of Jesus. But they're written by people, by people who have a specific goal in the telling. So Matthew, it wants us to see the Jewish Messiah. He wants us to see Jesus as the representative of Israel, living the story of Israel and fulfilling the prophecies of Israel. Luke wants us to see something specific. He is writing his book. Luke was a doctor. He was very well educated, probably one of the better educated people of his day. And he was writing his books to a diverse group of people. Now, he addresses his book, both Luke and the follow-up, the book of Acts. He addresses them to someone named Theophilus. Scholars don't agree on whether Theophilus is one person or a group of people. But what we know for sure is that the book was intended to be read to a church, to a group of people. That this was a community letter. And the, the, the book was intended for the people of God. And at that point in time in history, the people of God were extremely diverse. They were diverse racially, socioeconomically. They were diverse in status, in status and class. They were diverse in every way a group of people can. This would have been a community in which literally slaves and masters would be worshiping together. In which people who had followed every Jewish law for as long as they could remember would be worshiping next to prostitutes and thieves and sinners and pagans. This was a place in which pacifists and soldiers would be joining in the same community. It was as diverse as you could get. And there was a perception, as human beings tend to do, that there were certain people who had some sort of inside track or special status in the church because of who they were or how they were born. So Luke is writing with the specific intent to show that Jesus is the God of all people. 
he wants, he is highlighting. Now, all of the Gospels tell us this, but Luke gives a specific emphasis that God is the God of everyone, that Jesus is the Savior of the outcast and the ostracized. Now, what we're reading in Luke chapters 1 and 2 is really the introduction to the book of Luke. So this serves to set the tone. Luke is introducing the themes that will become relevant throughout the entire book of Luke. So if you were to keep reading, what you would notice is that Luke pays more attention every time Jesus talks to a widow or to an orphan or to someone who is ostracized or to someone who is an outcast. He pays more attention than maybe Matthew does to those stories because he wants us to notice that Jesus didn't overlook anyone. He is telling us Jesus is the God of the outcast. And in this introduction, Luke, because he is a good author who is creative and inspired by the Holy Spirit and guided by the Holy Spirit, he is introducing these themes in the beginning. And he's also providing some legal validation to the story that he's telling. Make sense? I told you. Luxury. All right. It's a lot of stuff. All right. So here's what Luke is doing. Now, Phil did a great job last week of diving into the details of the Christmas story. I'm not going to rehash all of that. But here is how Luke is bringing this in to the God of the outcast. This, Jesus is born into a controversial situation full of shame and rumors. The first characters in this story that we read are Mary and Joseph. Now, Mary is a married woman who is claiming that she is a virgin, who is claiming that God is the father of her child, and she is claiming that that she has been faithful to Joseph the entire time. I don't know if you know much about human nature, but rumors are going to start spreading around this type of claim. Everybody who can do the math is going to start adding up when they got married and when the baby comes. And they're not, people don't tend to believe the miraculous if there's a rumor or a more obvious thing to believe. So people are going to start assuming that maybe this is a cover-up. That maybe this is the story they're telling because this child was actually born in sin. This child was born out of wedlock. And there are a lot of negative implications in culture for a family or for a child born into sin in this culture. So they must be covering it up. Or maybe people are going to assume that they're covering up an affair or some sort of unfaithfulness. If you have ever, in, in your experience of life, found yourself with rumors circulating about you, true or not, I want you to know you've got a place in this story. That Jesus knows what that's like. Mary and Joseph knew what it was like to hear whispers and to wonder what those whispers were about. Now, they had a close group of people people who knew them well and followed in the way of God that affirmed their story. But in general, Jesus was born into controversy. This is a disruptive and hard-to-believe story, which is why Luke is doing so much work to bring in these details originally in the story. Mary and Joseph are in a situation of shame and of rumors. Not only that, Jesus is born into a blended family. Jesus is quite literally born in a family where he does not live with his biological father, where he is raised with half-siblings. So I want you to know that if you have ever found yourself in a situation where answering a question like, hey, who's your dad? Or who's the father? Jesus knows what that is like. Because it was a complicated answer for him too. 
Jesus was born into a situation where there would have been rumors circulated about him. Jesus was born into a family that did not fit the expectations of the day. You have a place in the story. Now Luke continues, and he tells us that Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a really specific place. It's the cultural and and religious capital of the people of Israel. This is the important place. And this was tradition that every family would bring their, their new child to Jerusalem to be consecrated. This was according to the law. But Luke gives special detail to that because he wants us to know that Jesus left Galilee, that he left the backwater town of Bethlehem, and rather than going to Nazareth where he grew up, which was not a good community, by the way. No one bragged about being from Nazareth. In fact, being from Nazareth meant you had a bad reputation. That's where Jesus was from. If you've ever not wanted to give somebody your address because the part of town it was in, Jesus knows what that's like because that's how he grew up. They take him to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the cultural and religious center of the day. It's significant. Luke wants us to know that something significant happened that was affirmed in a significant place where people trust the information that comes from there. You know when you read something in like a significant newspaper or something comes out of a major cultural hub, it seems a little more trustworthy than if it comes from the newspaper of like I don't know, Pickens, right? That's what's going on here. Luke wants us to know that they went to Jerusalem. And Luke gives something else that's really important, specific information. Phil mentioned this last week, but Luke tells us that they followed the instruction of the law, which was to bring the sacrifice of two doves or two young pigeons. Now, that might not strike us as obvious, but the original readers would have known that this was a provision in the law so that those who were poor could participate in the religious system. This was an accommodation in the legal and religious code that made a way for those who could not afford the normal sacrifice to still participate. So what that means is, if you've ever been at the doctor's office trying to hide the fact you're handing a Medicaid card and not an insurance card so that no one sees your private information, then Mary and Joseph know what that's like because they lived under an accommodation of the legal system for their status. If you've ever been in that situation where you're at the grocery store and you're trying to, show, you're trying to not show people that you're paying with stamps and not a credit card, Mary and Joseph know what that's like. That's what Luke is making very clear to us, that they lived a difficult situation, that Jesus was not born into wealth and to riches. He was born into a family that had really nothing to show for themselves. He was born into a difficult situation. If you, like me, grew, in, grew up wearing secondhand clothes and hand-me-downs and playing with used toys, then you have a childhood a lot like Jesus. If you look at pictures of me from when I was eight or nine, you would think that I played soccer a lot. It's actually because my older cousins, who were one size ahead of me, played a lot of soccer. I thought that would be funny. I guess it's not. It's just sad. That's all right. You have a place in the story of Jesus. Now, this is a difficult, complicated, and disruptive narrative. This is not how anyone expected the Savior to come. So Luke does something specific. In this day, as in many cultures, legally, witnesses were required to confirm a testimony. But a testimony was considered valid if two witnesses could confirm 
could agree on the same testimony of what happened. So what Luke does is he brings, he shows us that Mary and Joseph came to Jerusalem, that they came to the cultural and religious center of the day, and that they had two witnesses in the temple, in the most significant place that, could ha- that it could have happened, that there were two witnesses who confirmed that Jesus is actually the Messiah. Like Phil said last week, Luke wants us to know that this is not a myth, this is not a story, that this actually happened, and there were a legal number of witnesses to prove that this was a true story. Why? Because it's disruptive and no one would have expected it. So it's not so much, it's significant that there are two witnesses, but what's more significant is who the witnesses are and what the witnesses said. So first we come to a guy named Simeon. Now Simeon, we are not given any sort of special information about Simeon. We don't know if he was a priest. We don't know if he was a prophet. The only thing that we're told about Simeon is that he was a righteous man who was devout And that he had some sort of intuition, some sort of inclination from the Holy Spirit that he would live until he saw the Messiah with his own eyes. Now, I don't know if you... I don't know if you've ever found yourself believing something, believing some sort of promise from the Lord that seems a little outlandish. And you start to wonder if it's ever going to come true. And you start to wonder if maybe... Maybe you didn't actually hear the Lord right. If you've found yourself in a place where you've been wondering if God really just speaks to other people and not to you, you're in the story. You're the first witness. If you've found yourself in a place, because we don't know anything about Simeon except for that he's righteous and devout. And listen, churches are full of people. Our church, I guarantee you, if we were to be honest is full of people who are doing their best to follow in the way of Jesus every day and wondering if it's making any sort of difference in the world and wondering if it really matters. If you have ever found yourself in a situation where you keep showing up and you keep being faithful and you keep pressing on, wondering if it's going to make a difference, if you found yourself praying for a family member for years and years, wondering if anything's going to change, if you found yourself living in purity for so long and wondering when anything's going to shift or when God's going to honor your commitment, if if that's you, if you've been following in the way of Jesus day in and day out and it feels like nothing's going to give, I want you to know you're in the story, you're the first witness. You're Simeon. Because we don't know anything about Simeon other than he was just a guy who kept showing up and kept doing the right thing. He was one of the the many, many Christians who live lives that no one notices, that no one tells stories about and no one Instagrams, but that confirm and witness to the work of the gospel every day. But it's not just who Simeon is, it's what he says. Now, we say this a lot at the fold, and it can't be overstated. At this time in, church, in history, in the history of the people of Israel, everybody, the majority of people believed that the Savior was going to come with a sword and overthrow Rome. That he was going to come in military power to restore the people of Israel to political, financial, and military influence. They wanted another King David who led them to the height of their power and glory. They wanted a warrior king who was going to set them free from every physical captivity that they were under. That was the common understanding of the day. So it is significant and honestly a little bit surprising that Simeon doesn't prophesy that over Jesus. 
Simeon seems to have figured out what is probably the most common misconception throughout both scripture and church history. Because one of our most consistent struggles, one of our most consistent misconceptions of the gospel is that we believe that when Jesus comes to bless us, that it means he's going to give us power and influence and money and get rid of our enemies. And that is a misconception that has happened all throughout church history and all throughout scripture. We are no different than the people of Israel. We tend to believe the exact same thing about whatever business, nation, family, or financial situation we're in. Jesus is just coming to fix us. And that's how he's going to help the world. Simeon says the opposite. Simeon says, this is the Savior who has come to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, to the people that are not the people of God. He, in fact, goes on to say that he is the glory of the people of Israel as a light to the Gentiles, that this is what God has been doing all along, that he has always been the God of all people, and he will always be the God of all people. What that means is, if you have ever felt like you are not for whatever reason, included in the people of God or included in the gospel because of your background, because of where you were born, because of how you look, because of how you dress, because of what's on your internet search history or the texts in your phone, then you are in the story. You are the one that Jesus came for. You are the one the gospel is for and was always for. That's what Simeon is telling us. He's telling us that God is not the God of those who have it together. That God is not the God of those who can present well. That God is the God of those that were restricted and kept away and ostracized. That that is who he's always been and that is who Jesus is. And Jesus isn't coming to make everything easier. He's disruptive. The truth of forgiveness and hope and unconditional love is disruptive to every system in society. And he's telling us that. He's not celebrating that the Savior is going to fix everything. He's celebrating that the Savior is the light of revelation. And those are different. If you have felt like the gospel is for everybody else but not you, then you're in the story too. You're the one that Jesus is coming for. And just for the record, if you, like me, have felt like you have somehow earned the inside track that the gospel is for you and not other people, then you're the one whose heart will be revealed in the unconditional forgiveness of Jesus when we realize that we needed the same forgiveness as everyone else. That's the first witness. And it gives us a second witness. And it gives us detail about Anna. Now, this is significant. First off, Anna was a prophet. There aren't a lot of female prophets in Scripture. It's significant that Anna was a prophet. Anna wasn't just a prophet. Anna was a widow. It says she had been a widow until she was 84, that she had lived with her husband for seven years, and then he had died. Now, if we're going to do the cultural math, then we can add up that she was probably married between the ages of 14 and 16, which means her husband probably died when she was about 23. So she had lived her entire life, the overwhelming majority of her life as a widow. In that culture, widows did not have good prospects. In general, the options for a woman who had been widowed would have been prostitution or would have been some sort of secondary marriage But this unfortunate reality of that culture was that a woman who had been widowed was generally seen as second class or as used up. It would not have been a very good marriage, most likely, for anyone pursuing a second marriage unless they had some sort of kinsman redeemer option like in the book of Ruth. Phil did a great job preaching about that back in October. I would highly recommend you go back and listen to that sermon if you're wondering about kinsman redeemers. 
Suffice it to say, it was not a common option. So really, the only realistic option for somebody like Anna would have been that she return home to her father's house and become a maid. Because in this culture, the only way a woman could generally have any sort of status, stability, or legacy was through a husband or a father. They needed a man in her life to have some sort of stability. But what we see is that Anna rejects the script that culture would give her and rather dedicates herself to the Lord. It says she did not leave the temple, but rather prayed and fasted and and prophesied day and night. And that we don't know how she got this status or title of prophet, but we know that through her dedication to the Lord, that she became known as someone who spoke to the people the wisdom and words of God. This is significant because Anna was a person that would not have had a voice in this culture. But she is given the status of confirming witness to the birth of Jesus. She is the witness who validates the testimony so that we read the story and we know legally this happened. We can trust this story. It's outlandish and it's ridiculous. What that means is if you have ever felt like you don't have a voice, if you've ever felt like you don't have a place, if you've ever felt like because of who you are, how you look, or how you dress, that you are somehow ostracized or restricted or silenced, you're in the story too. You're the second witness. You're the confirming witness to the work of Jesus in the world. See, Luke is not only legally confirming, he's giving evidence for the ridiculous, disruptive, unexpected birth of the Savior, but he's also showing us something that's been true of Scripture throughout all of Scripture. Now, you might be familiar with the fact that from the very beginning of Scripture, from the laws of Moses, that there are specific people groups that God seems to have special attention and intention towards. And those people are the poor, like Mary and Joseph, the fatherless. Jesus was not raised with his biological father. He steps into the experience of being adopted by his stepfather. The foreigner whom Simeon prophesies that Jesus has been the savior of all along. And the widow of Anna. You have a place in the story. God is the God of everyone. And God is specifically the God of those who do not feel like they have a place. But I want to say one last thing. I know this has been heady and this has been luxury, but there's one more thing, and this is incredibly important. Have you ever, have you ever uh, been to, like, a kid's birthday party and you don't know anyone there? All the parents raise their hand. Yeah, it's super, super fun. Um, like, you have a place there, but you, don't, you really wonder why you're there because you don't know anyone. Have any of you, I definitely had this experience, any of you ever been on a team but all you did was ride the bench? Like you had a place on the team, but not really a purpose? You felt kind of useless? Have you ever been on a committee or in a meeting when it felt like you were just there so they could have you, but they weren't going to listen to you? You don't just have a place in the gospel story. You have a purpose in the gospel story. Because the birth of Jesus didn't just create place 
for the foreigner, widow, orphan, and fatherless, for the poor and the fatherless. It created a purpose. Jesus comes through Joseph and Mary. They welcome the Savior of the world and train him and teach him how to follow in the ways of his heavenly Father. They are the family that loves and cares for and raises Jesus. Simeon, the faithful witness who feels like probably nothing is really coming from his life, is the first witness who confirms that Jesus is coming. Your life has a significant purpose in the world. The widow, the confirming witness, one who would have been ostracized who would not have had place in society, who would have been a charity case. She becomes the legal confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is because you are not taking up space in the kingdom of God. You have a specific place and purpose in the kingdom of God. We need your voice. We need your skills. We need your influence because Jesus is changing everything and you are part of it. You're part of it. You don't just have a place here. You're not just on the team to be a token. You have a purpose here. You have a place at the fold. You have people at the fold. And you have a purpose in this mission God has called us to. You are not taking up space. You're not here because God is being nice. You have a purpose. The birth of Jesus gives us place and purpose. Let's pray. God, we thank you that that you go beyond just welcoming us into your kingdom, but that you give us a place and a purpose and a job to do in your household because you have given us skills and you have given us things to say and things to do that, that genuinely make a difference. God, we thank you that your story is not the story we would have written, but it is the story we needed. We thank you that you came as the unexpected Savior. And that in the breaking of our expectations, you introduce us to something new and better. Show us the unique, beautiful purpose that we have in you as we come to trust the place that you have invited us into in your kingdom. We love you.